Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold. Welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 207. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Freaky Magazine. I contribute material to every issue, so give it a try. Hey kids, have you read Freaky? The magazine of weird humor for freaks like you. Freaky Magazine is a way out collection of weirdo comics, kooky gags, photo funnies, social satire, and surreal collage. 52 pages of insanity in the tradition of magazines of yore like Cracked, Plop, and Zap. Special offer for Fun Ideas listeners, get a free sample copy in the mail. Made of smelly newsprint and smudgy ink the old-fashioned way. Just message your mailing address to theslowpoisoner at gmail.com That's theslowpoisoner at gmail.com while supplies last. On sale now is Mark Arlo's latest book called Pac-Man, the first animated show based upon a video game. This book tells the story of Pac-Man phenomenon and goes through the entire history of the Hanna-Barbera Animation Studios. The history of the video game, pre-Pac-Man, the history of Pac-Man, the character, the video game, the spin-off, the merchandise, and the anime TV series. Each and every episode of the classic 1980 series is covered and examined. Plus, Mark Arnold covers how Pac-Man has been honored on various anniversaries, including the 40th anniversary in 2021. A fun read for casual and hardcore Pac-Man and video game fans alike, featuring many character model sheets and other images. Available online through Bear Manor Media, Amazon, and Barnes & Noble. Get your copy today. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by PopOptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. Stars of Walt Disney Productions is my latest book out now. I am almost ready to turn it into my manuscript for Unconditionally Mad. I'm also working on my TV Cartoons That Time Forgot book, plus articles on Nightmare of the Galloping Ghost and Harvey Superheroes. On today's show, we have one of the editors and publishers of the late lamented Animato. He was also the editor of PC World and is currently the technology editor for Fast Company. Here he is, Harry McCracken, along with Camden Spees. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with yet another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast. And today I have recurring guest Camden, Camden Spees, I can't even say your name, and a brand new guest, but I've known him for years, uh, Harry McCracken. How are you? Welcome I'm to great. the show. Great to be with you. And hey, Camden. How's it going? Great. Thank you. So, you know, I know Harry from two, two worlds, and you'll, we'll probably talk about them as the animation world and the high tech world. So, you know, it's like, uh, I guess I will have you introduce yourself and just kind of let us know how you got into both those diverse subjects. Sure. Well, um, my day job is generally involved writing about technology, which is, um, there's more demand for that from people willing to pay you than there is for pe people willing to pay you to write about comics and cartoons and so forth. But uh, um, I love technology, so that hasn't been so bad. And um, I work for a publication called Fast Company, which is about the intersection of, of business, innovation, and tech. Uh, before that, I worked for Time Magazine, 
at my own site called Technologizer. And uh, way back when I worked for PC World magazine, back back when there were computer magazines, there were about three to 400 pages uh, <laughs> in, in the days before the, the World Wide Web kind of um, reduced the need for um, stuff about computers on dead trees. And um, and I've been interested in comics and cartoons all my life. I, I imagine I'm uh, pretty similar to most people with that interest in that I don't actually remember when I got interested in them, although... I'm just old enough to have watched Adam West as Batman when it was first on. I was like two. And while I don't remember doing it back then, my mother always said that I was an ardent fan and I did not realize there was anything humorous about it. And I, I used to have her set an extra place at the dinner table for Robin. So I, I took it pretty seriously. That's cool. And then another thing you're interested in, which hold it up, Camden. You're also, uh, you have a scrappy website too. <laughs> that so, is probably my yeah. biggest claim to fame. Yes, Scrappy Land. <laughs> so we're scrappy fans too. So, um, yes, I have actually just watched this. I did like, I like to do things in order where I watched all the Columbia cartoons chronologically. Wow. I like and, scrappy and well, everything all else. The ones, too? All the ones that are online. I didn't watch all of them, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> Those, that character really changes. Totally. The other character that changes, which I have mixed feelings about those cartoons, is the crazy cat ones. Yeah, they did like not really worry too much about I also don't like them that they screwed up that whole format of Harriman's strip. Yeah, I mean, in, in uh, Columbia cartoons, sometimes they didn't even bother to care about consistency from one scene to the next. They, you know, yeah. you'd, have, you'd have three animators doing that, and each of them would do his own thing, and then they would just yeah. tie them together into a cartoon. So um, let's see, uh, I guess um, one of the things that I, I, I guess I first heard about you probably was either Appetunes or Animato. I don't know which came first. And I don't, you got refresh my memory because it's been so long ago myself and I'm, I'm kind of doing this on memory, which is fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, they certainly came out of the same era, but Appetunes was a little bit older. It goes back, I, I joined in 1982 when I was in high school and it, it was, um, at least a few months old by then. I believe it started in 1981 mm -hmm. and Animato started in the spring of 1983. Mm -hmm. um, both, both products of uh, the era when there were more and more people into animation. And um, even back then there was a little conversation about it going on online, but, but primarily it was in the context of fanzines. Mm -hmm. And did you start Animato mainly no. because, Oh, 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 oh. I should say, I, I thought you were asking me if I started it, and the answer to that is no, but uh, complete the question, and then I'll try to clarify okay. things. Okay, um, so Michael Ventrella started it, then. I, I get that mixed up. Like I said, I should have done my research, but it doesn't say this stuff online, so it's like I have to do it from memory, so should have had him here to you know tell how it started, but I think uh, I have asked him about that before, and that it was kind of like a response to the uh, late lamented David Mruz Animania slash Mind Rot, which uh, Q Camden, he'll hold up an issue there. <laughs> yeah, is so, which but he, when you, which Mark gave to me. Yes, I gave him one of those because I figured he should have the honor of having one roughly about the same age when I bought it originally. <laughs> so, um, so when you took over Animato, since now we remember the order of things around here, was it still the smallish size, like the digest size, like uh, Animato, or did you bring it full size immediately, or what was the story? That? It was originally a digest, and uh, right. Mike, Mike did start Animato along with um, a friend of him named Scott Gillespie was also involved and some other folks, and uh, one day back then, I was at the Million Year Picnic, which was my, my favorite comic book store <laughs> in uh, the Boston area, and, and it's still my favorite comic book store. It's, it's still there. Oh, and I, I saw an ad for a screening of uh, cartoons. I, I believe it was, um, um, I guess it might have just been the best cartoons of all time or something general like that. And I, I tried to go to every cartoon screening I could because I, I did not have a VCR quite yet. And uh, even if I did, there weren't all that many cartoons available. And I, I went there and saw that the, the folks had put on on that screening also had put out a, a fanzine called Animato. <laughs> and uh, for um, maybe about four or five issues, I was just a reader. But then I met Mike because he had joined Appetunes. And I, I believe he dropped me a note, maybe with, with my subscription issue of Animato saying, hey, I'm, I'm in the area. Uh, give me a call. 
And um, so I became part of this Animato team. And originally this was um, kind of a few years before desktop publishing was a thing. So we, we put it together on portable typewriters. And I still have memories <laughs> of, of making corrections with liquid paper and there being almost no liquid paper left in the tiny jar and really, really enough to scrape it to make my corrections on the page. And uh, we took it to basically a copy shop in Harvard Square. Uh, and I thought that they had some kind of elaborate machine that, that would fold them and staple them. And it but, turned out that they just had like an army of Harvard students and they would print them out and then the students would fold them and staple them. Wow. And um, it got to be quite popular. Um, I mean, we uh, got into comic shops. Um, one other thing I should mention, by the way, um, everybody assumes that Animato was kind of a response to Mindrot slash mm -hmm. Animania because the formats were basically the same and mm -hmm. some of the people wrote for them but Mike says that he had not heard of, of Animania when he started Animato. It was just kind of a, a coincidence that yeah. he came up, came up with quite it a similar was, idea. Was, was, um, was this magazine still in print, though? I don't know the history, uh, the, the timelines. I mean, there was uh, there was like this what, that one last issue of Funny World that was done by the people that Mike sold it to. Uh, that was also, I think, around 1983. So yeah. um, both... Animania and uh, Funny World were kind of winding down, which was probably one reason why why people liked um, Animato because it was just getting started. And, and, if um, you, and if I remember right, when I look at old issues of Animation Magazine or Animation World Network, they they don't do this anymore at all. But then they used to do like you know issues like you know something like animation history related at one time. I think so. Um, my friend John Colley was involved in, in the original version of Animation Magazine, which was kind of more originally kind of a, a newsletter and became more of a magazine. And it got to be really kind of a, a trade publication. So, um, uh, well, there were certainly some topics that both Animato and Animation World would cover. They were like from such entirely different perspectives that uh, that was fine. And we had the tagline, Animato, the Animation Fans Magazine, kind of, which in retrospect, did a good job of clarifying that even though we did have a lot of readers who are in the business, we, um, that's because everybody in the business is also a fan. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and to get around to your question, uh, eventually we kind of out outgrew the little digest sized um, format. And it, it turned out that like, as your press run gets bigger and bigger, it doesn't actually get ch much cheaper to publish a digest. And, and the copy shop ended up being kind of overwhelmed by our print run. And we discovered we could go to a full size for like the same cost or maybe even less. And so we did that. And then we, we went to a better paper and a color cover. Um, so who were the original, this question for both of you, for you, but who were the original writers of Animato or and Abitons really too? Uh, well, for uh, Animato, there were a bunch of folks. And originally it was just like this very local Boston thing. Uh, but pretty quickly, we had readers all over the country and, and contributors from all over. So um, John Colley, who um, kind yes. of has been involved with kind of a lot of stuff involving animation fandom for like maybe close to 50 years because he, he had a film collector's magazine in the mid-70s. I wish he, he had done another volume of, of what, I guess, what Jim Corkins would later revise into the um, the animation anecdotes on cartoon research. Right. Um yeah, he, um, they did a bunch of books together, Jim and John, and John um, volunteered basically to do a, a West Coast news section for Animato, and he also did a ton of stuff involving uh, connecting us with other people. From Appetunes, I did know quite a few other fans. I mean, I knew Jerry Beck and Jim Corcus and um, some other folks who also volunteered to write for Animato, and um, because uh, Animania was winding down, there were, there were people like, like G. Michael Dobbs, who had, he had his Coco Comments column in Animania, and he just brought that over to Animato. And so we, we had a ton of people who were willing to, to help us, and it was just great. And were you the editor all the way to the end? And I don't remember what issue that was. Um, no. Or did you? Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, basically, at first, Mike did most of the work, along with other folks like, like Scott, who I mentioned, and Matt, our friend Matthew Hassan also did a ton of stuff for it. And I started out just kind of writing and helping with the pace stuff. And uh, also we, we had to um, put them all into envelopes and put mailing labels on them. And once we started selling to comic stores, we had to bo box them up. Um, so there was a, a lot of um, 
production work. And I just remembered that after a while, we stopped having the copy shop staple them, I think maybe to save a little money. So we, we even collated them ourselves. <laughs> and um, Mike, as you know, has, has a whole bunch of interests. He's, he's into um, comics and cartoons, but he, he also was doing uh, role-playing gaming and has, has a serious interest in music and he had a band back then. So mm-hmm. it's also, as you also know, it's very hard to do a fanzine forever. So kind of little by little, I took over more and eventually I got access to a Mac back when the tools like PageMaker were new. And so I, I was able to do these nice layouts and kind of gradually with maybe without ever being planned that way, it went from me helping Mike to more like it being Mike helping me. Mm-hmm. And at, at some point I was basically the, the editor with some help from Mike. Mm-hmm. And um, then I can remember very clearly in, in 1991, I was, I was sitting probably at about two in the morning, putting together an, an issue. And I just sort of had a, a small nervous breakdown because um, it was so much work and I was doing this on top of my day job. And I just sort of, and I also felt a lot of pressure to, to get the issue out because we had all these people who had paid for subscriptions. And I, I kind of just said to myself, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. And um, Mike, I kind of handed it back to Mike and um, Mike, not too long thereafter, turned it over to um, these two guys who are also from Massachusetts, um, G. Michael Dobbs, who we knew very well from uh, his Coco Comments column and, and a friend of his name named Patrick Duquette. And they took it over and uh, they did a, a bunch of cool things. I mean, they got it out a lot more regularly than I ever did. They got it into places like, like Tower Records. Um, so the distribution went beyond comic shops. Um, they brought in a whole bunch of new writers. Um, so they, they did a great job. And that went on for, I think, about another um, seven years. Mm. And then once again, it kind of ran into the issue that it's hard to keep this kind of thing going forever. And I believe they also, um, they got it onto newsstands, but then there was a sort of newsstand distribution meltdown. And I believe maybe they had like distributors who um, owed the money and so forth. And and after a while, Mike also left to start his own uh, fanzine called um, Animation Planet. And yeah. so I believe in 1998, and that only lasts down. like a couple issues, though. That, that lasted a few issues, and, and Patrick continued to do Animato on his own. Um, and uh, given how hard it is for two people to do a fanzine of that caliber, um, one person being in charge of, of something like that, which they both tried to do, was was really tough. So it wound down at that point, and that was also sort of um, more or less at the same time that there started to be a, a lot of good websites about animation, and maybe like in a perfect world, Animato would have kind of morphed into being a website. Sometimes I think it would still be fun to bring it back or do something something like that <laughs> today, um, but I probably would not do it in print. Um, yeah. Back back then, like uh, we, could, we could barely afford to do black and white illustrations on the inside because I'd have to have them screened by a, a production house and that cost oh, about, wow. about about $15 each. <laughs> um, and now today, on you know, just the fact you can do a website and have an unlimited access to color is amazing. I, also back then, like scanners were like really expensive. They were probably about fifteen hundred right. to two thousand dollars, and so we we had to pay to get stuff scanned. And uh, um, eventually, desktop publishing got a lot easier, but but the the web would be even cooler. I have one question about a specific issue because I have two books next to me about Murray's Noble, the one by Tom Polson, and the one by um, what was the other one? <laughs> Stepping in the picture. Yes. Um, you interviewed Murray Snowball for one issue of one of the magazines. Um, how did that come about? I'm just curious because. Sure. Well, one of the coolest things that um, happened because of Animato was getting some contact with um, some of the legends of, of the industry. I mean, I, I feel lucky that we were doing this at a time when, when a fair percentage of the people who worked at, at Disney and Warner's and other studios in the, the 30s, 40s, and 50s were still around. Um, I became good friends with Seamus Culhane, uh, who uh, actually wrote for us. Um, actually, I, I, I believe that he first wrote to us because um, Mike Dobbs wrote a critical review of, of uh, Seamus's book. And Seamus wrote and was rather irate about it. But then we, we became good friends. And I, I visited him at his um, co-op in, in New York. And then um, there was this big um, animation auction in Philadelphia. 
And um, it was held at the time when um, uh, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson had this new book out on the making of Bambi. And in conjunction with this auction, they, they had a signing where um, Frank and Ollie and Mark Davis and Maurice all appeared. Um, Maurice worked on uh, Bambi, although he, ma he mainly did um, inspirational artwork that they didn't end up using. So you don't really see his impact on the screen, but it, it occupied a, a fairly large block of his time back then. And uh, I took the train from Boston to Philadelphia with my, my friend, Dave Mackey, and um, a couple of other friends of ours, uh, Mike Scoville and, and Pam Scoville, uh, who, who ran something called the Animation Art Guild, which was kind of a, a big deal at the time. And uh, we attended the auction and we got our autographed copies of this book. And um, my memory is like people were kind of all gravitating towards Frank and Ollie uh, and maybe Mark Davis because the nine old men were such a big deal. And Maurice did not have quite so many people flocking to him. So, so Dave and I spent some time talking to him. And um, this was kind of before um, he uh, kind of got as much attention as he later did as, as, as a grandmaster of design. So we loved talking to him. And it turned out that that our friends Pam and Mike had some contacts, and so I asked them to put me in touch with Maurice, and I asked to interview him, and that that turned into um, that cover story in the last issue of Animato, I edited, and also into this really wonderful friendship I, I had with him uh, from then until he passed away about ten years later. Were you living in in um, Philadelphia this whole time? I lived in Boston. Uh, I got Boston. to got to Philadelphia on the train, but I, I was an East Coast guy. And uh, at first, I mean, that certainly had some impact on uh, Animato in that uh, we, were, we were doing it from the other side of the country of, of a lot of the people and history we were covering. Um, but I did get to go out, out to LA occasionally. And um, I think especially af after I did that issue, I, my job at PC World Magazine involved going to LA occasionally. So I, I would get to, to visit Maurice and hang out with him quite a bit. I have a question about an issue. I don't know if you edited it. If you didn't, well, I guess you don't have the answer and I'll just, uh, did you do the one, <laughs> excuse me, the issue that you had the underdog cover and uh, interview with Joe Harris or no? No, that was, um, I can't remember whether that was both Mike and uh, Pat or whether that was after it was just Pat Duquette okay. doing it. But Probably that was, was both of them at then, huh. if that's the case. That was one of the later issues. Yeah. And I should, I should yeah. say I, I continued to, to write for Animato and to uh, try to support yeah. it. And I, I, I thought it was cool that it continued on without me. Um, right. And I, the only reason I'm mentioning that one is that actually is the one that helped me break the ice to get the other people to do my total television book. Because oh, wow. I knew nobody. And that was like the first inkling of somebody. And then Buck and Chet wrote their underdog book, but uh, um, it was just a matter of like going through, you know, well, I can call you and then can you give me the number for him? <laughs> You've probably done this yourself, you know, and you go through <laughs> everyone to get all the people that you need. So, you know, but I it was tough. <laughs> it was tough because, you know, there's no credits on those cartoons, you know, and you had to find out. And then, but Joe Harris was the first name I ever even heard from the show, other than the voice artists. And so I'm like, huzzah. <laughs> so anyway, I want to thank Anamato, even if you personally didn't <laughs> have anything to do with it. So I've been know. scanning the issues that I did do and putting them in the Internet Archive just because there is a lot of valuable history. And I, I, I would not scan those issues since they weren't mine, but I would hope that eventually all, all of them would be available because there is a lot of great stuff in there. Mm hmm. And it's just funny, I, I assume, if we've talked before, I assume you remember I did a fanzine about Harvey Comics. And totally. I mean, yeah, one of the first. I, I, would, <laughs> I, I grew up as a really hardcore Harvey fan, and uh, right. the fact you had a fanzine was like one of the, I went, through a, I went through a long period where basically if I went into a store to, bu to buy Harvey back issues, um, the sales clerks would mock me or, or get confused and think I was trying to sell them and would like tell me there was nobody interested in, in these comics except for me. So the fact you had the fanzine was like one of the, the first signs there actually were other people. And it's kind of amazing to think today that um, there are a lot of those I, people. And then I, I, I love just... it. Every time Mark, I bought books from Mark, he wraps his books in copies of the Harveyville Fun Times. Well, no more. I don't have any left. I finally did enough of those. But yeah, I had, there's a few issues, you know, and you probably had this where you had a bigger print run than you anticipated. <laughs> uh distributing and so 
uh, like issue 29, I remember, is one I had tons of copies of. And uh, it's because I went through this one printer, and I think it was because I had just lost Diamond Distributing because I managed to get into comic stores at one point, and Diamond just cut me off. Boom. And so I had all these extra issues, and so I had those for years. And so, yeah, I'd use them for padding if people weren't buying back issues and stuff like that. And eventually, I think they're all gone now, you know, but it's taken me... You know, because I stopped in 2011, it's taken me 10 years to, you know, get rid of all of them, all the excess, just doing wait, it that wait, way. Wait, Mark, would that mean that, like, you were probably, like, the last comic-related fanzine other than Hogan's Alley? Well, I was going to say that, because it's, it, Harry's bringing back memories for me. It's like, well, I stopped doing this, and if it continued on, it would have been a, a website, you know. Well, I was one of these fools who kept going, because, honestly, I started in 1990. I probably should have stopped around 2000. You got out, or whoever was running it, got out just in time, because 98, yeah, that's when internet was starting to ramp up and everything, and certainly by 2000, if you're publishing a magazine that wasn't a big, you know, widely distributed thing, I'll, I'll just say, naming myself, you know, you're a fool. <laughs> so, um, and I kept it going for 10 more years, and it got to the point where um, I had a website presence and everything, and it, I think the website's still up after all this time. But it is, um, yeah. But I don't update anymore. I could. But... It is because because I had to plug it. I'm doing Oren Scott's animation <laughs> bibliography. Mm -hmm. What, well, um, well, Harry? I'm sure you've seen it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm working with him on a web bibliography of all the websites. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. Well, good. I'm glad it made the cut. Anyway, so... I saw it on there. It, it, it still exists. It still looks like it's from 19. Like you haven't updated it since 98. Yeah, that's about right. Maybe a little bit later, but anyway, when when I when I kept publishing at the tail end, I was spending. I wasn't making any money off of it at all. It was like, okay, do I want to spend like two to four hundred dollars this month? Or do I want to do it this month? That's where it got to the point. And the last few issues, I went full color. I decided just to splurge and go all out and end on a high note. So the last few issues, really hard to find, really good looking magazine. <laughs> I was doing Animato back in this period where there were, were lots and lots of animation art dealers, and all these people doing like limited edition sales. Mm -hmm. And so for, for at least a brief period, there was kind of a solid advertising base for an animation yeah. fanzine. And so we did quite well. And, um, you know, our goal was never to make money. And in, in fact, um, if we had made a little bit more money than we did, it would have gone into paying the contributors. And, and Mike and Pat eventually did start paying, which was nice to see. One thing that uh, Mike Ventrella taught me, which I always thought was smart, was he he was like super conservative about print runs for Animato. He, he would like order as many as we knew we could sell and just a, a little more for back issues, but he wouldn't go crazy. Yeah. And in, in fact, some of the early issues of Animato went, went through more than one print run, which is probably really unusual for a fanzine, mm. just because just we actually sold out and were able <laughs> to sell even more. And, and if you're just photocopying them, it's, it's easy enough to do, to run yeah. off a few more copies. That one I was a subscriber, I believe, the entire time, because um, uh, I, I don't know how I heard about the first issue, but I mean, you know, there's ways people got the word out. So I, I, you know, even with no internet back then, but I guess it was just word of mouth and I knew it. So I was one of the charter subscribers. So I, I have know. a question for both of you. Yeah. How do, how does a magazine like Hogan's Alley now in 2023 still stay around? You want me I'd to love answer? to know. I'm really glad it does. Cause, cause it's yeah. the kind of, it's like the last vestige of uh, yeah. quality fanzines. And I mean, yeah, it's uh, I presumably it's not um, kept going because it's an incredible business opportunity, but, but through the passion and love and they're, they're able to put it out. I mean, it comes out what, once every year or two. Um, yeah. um, I'm really glad it survives or there are like a few other things that are out there. Like a, I'm not sure if illustration magazine is still out, but that I know that um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a subscriber. I don't know if y'all remember the Popeye fan club. Yes. Um, you get their magazine, their their newsletter every every. They still publish theirs four wow. times a year, I and they have the same writers and the same website. I think they ha they have the same. If you look at their website, they have the same website from nineteen. And that looks like it was it was made when the internet was created. I think it has to be done by somebody who is not in it for for the money. Uh, yeah. And if you don't care about the money side, I've been oh I've been to that museum. That's exactly why they do it. 
Um, um, I, and I, I know that there are the, the Laurel and Hardy magazine still exists. Oh, yeah. The Three Stooges magazine still exists. Abbott yeah, Costello still have a magazine. Well, the Abbott Costello isn't print anymore. Really? It's yeah. only online? Yeah, it's only online. It looks like a magazine, but, you know, I wanted to subscribe to it. And they go, well, we don't print it out anymore. And I said, not if I pay extra? No. <laughs> it's like, so I said, see, ya. I suppose I could have done it. But I still like getting... If I'm going to subscribe to something, I still want to get a physical copy. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, I, I still get the Three Stooges. I think I stopped for a few years for some dumb reason, but they still keep doing it. I still get Beetle Fan. That's probably the longest oh. fanzine I've ever gotten. I got, I've gotten it since 1983. <laughs> you get the Lauren Hardy magazine? The Lauren Hardy magazine. I should probably get that one. I should probably get that one. Um, it's actually really good. I have. I they just had a recent issue that's really cool. Um, the, I think the longest lived, if you want to call it a fanzine that I know about, it, and I subscribe to it off and on too, the Baum Bugle about the Wizard of Oz. Oh, wow, yeah, that's a great publication. Nineteen fifty-seven, and it still has black and white interior, but it has color covers. And, is it about the movie or is it about? It's about everything too. Oz, the books, and or I know anything. the, the Oz can, fan club did a very nice thing for me when I I did an article about Chuck Jones's Off to See a Wizard. They did a very nice thing on their website and they shared my article. Mm -hmm. It was very yeah, nice. they talked about that. Yeah, I remember. Uh, that. that was very friendly. That was very yeah, nice. So they, they'll talk that. about anything, Oz, because, um, you know, there's a zillion things besides just the 39 movie. You know, there's The Wiz, there's, uh, you know, Return to Oz, there's, you know, there's all the, the books, there's books, comic books, there's, books. you know, you're not, you're graphic not novels. Stuff to talk about. Yeah. There's <laughs> the Eshpah film. There's a theme uh, theme park. You know, I think the Eshpah film was going to be a movie, wasn't it? I believe so. You know, and they, and they talk about unrealized things. Like, they did one about the Rainbow Road Dawes, which was the uh, non-realized Disney version that was supposed to be made in the late 50s, and so it's fascinating reading stuff like that and they're they know their stuff so yeah <laughs> so anyway um oh yeah the other magazine that i still oh. get and i get and they publish it four times a year is the jack benning fan club magazine that was they I need to get that too. Yeah. yeah but laura Leibowitz, she gave me um she just sent me just because she wanted to i bound copies of her three volume jack benning books um now, yeah. Now, Harry, I have a question about Appatune since we're kind of jumping all around here. Mm -hmm. um, I remember I had trouble getting into Appatune. So I have a few issues just because there's always extra ones around here and there, but I never could become a member. Ooh, boo -hoo. You know, <laughs> and, uh, so were you, um, and what years were you a member and what had happened if, because obviously they don't do it now, right? I don't think they do any apps. Uh, a, a few years ago, it, it finally wound down. Okay. Um, yeah, it was another thing where it had, had to kind of figure out what it should be in the digital era. And um, it eventually became a CD-ROM based publication. And uh, that was like, um, Apples are entirely dependent on finding somebody to be the central mailer and do a, a lot of work with no right. glory. And uh, my good friend, Bob Miller, uh, was the last one to do that. And uh, when he couldn't do it anymore, he asked for volunteers and nobody volunteered. But I belonged from 1982 until, I don't what remember exactly. Uh, yeah, well, sure. Well, um, and for people who don't know what, what an APA is, that stands for Amateur Press Association. And this is an idea which I, I believe goes back to the 19th century back when, uh, you know, long before the Xerox machine, where if you were going to um, put out a small press magazine, you, you probably had a, a tiny printing press and you, you had to do uh, typesetting yourself. And um, basically the idea is that um, you have a, a bunch of people who want to put out a, a very low circulation publication of their own on, on a given topic. Um, back in the day, there were a bunch of them on comics. Um, Appetunes was about animation. Um, there were probably ones about almost any interest anybody could have. And everybody who was involved would create their own little magazine, um, you know, which usually was a few pages. Some people put out remarkably fancy, thick ones. And uh, it would be collated every so often. And in the case of Appetunes, it was every other month. And we would all send our copies to a, a central mailer who would then collate them all into one publication and staple them and then send out one copy to each member. Um, the reason it was hard to get in was because we there. I believe that the um, membership roster was limited to uh, 25 people. 
And there could be waitlisters, and we had a few honorary members like Mike Barrier and Leonard Malton. Yeah. And um, but the idea was to be kind of exclusive, and um, I'd say quite a number of our members were industry professionals, mm -hmm. and they they were understandably kind of um, cautious about speaking their mind and, and the, this tiny circulation publication and having to get back to the industry so that they kind of like like that it was a little secret uh and i we had a number of central mailers over the years um it was started by um a guy named don markstein who later wrote disney comics and his wife uh Gigi dane and uh, jerry was the central mailer uh, for a while my friend dave mackey was i did it um Another friend, Kip Williams and Kathy Doyle did it. And I think Bob did it twice and was the last one who did it. And um, yeah, at the end, it was a CD-ROM, which um, was kind of not, not quite as fun as waiting by the mailbox for, for this really thick magazine that after a while, it got to be so thick. It was like two volumes every other month. And How long did it run? It started in 1981. And I mean, it lasted until maybe a little over 10 years ago. I mean, it lasted well into the century and there was all kinds of great stuff in there um, yeah. that none of us had seen. And like, you know, Jim Corcus, um, we have, after a while we had this tradition that Jim's zine was always the first one because he, he was sort of the, uh, you know, the um, elder statesman of animation fandom and he would run all kinds of fantastic stuff. And um, you'd get to people like Milt Gray talk about uh, working in the industry in the 1960s and knowing people like, like Bill Tightlaw. And uh, again, a, a lot of this was before animation websites existed. And so um, if you weren't going to read this stuff in Appetunes, you might, you might not know about it at all. And I'm just curious, is there a way to put those issues out on the Internet Archive? Well, there's, um, there are two issues with doing that, one of which is just scanning would be tough, um, particularly because these, these are stapled. But even bigger than that, uh, we always had this rule that you were not supposed to share it. Um, I'm sure people sometimes did share it and we, we would send out extra copies to prospective members. And we, we also put out a few issues that were, were designed to be like freely available. Um, but for the most part, it was confidential. And uh, I've, I've, I've had people ask me about making them all available. And um, there are still members who really don't want these things they wrote 20 to 30 years ago to be publicly available. The, uh, Fred Patton, who was like another legend in, of animation fan, fandom mm -hmm. I, I believe gave his uh, collection to a library and um you can probably find out a, a way to get in there and, and read that if, if you're serious about it and i'd love to think that eventually they might all be available and um i do have digital copies of, of one or two issues we did for general availability and i should see if those are on the archive, like, archive and if they're not i'll put them there or like you think you could put it based on article based like for example if you would be willing to put out the article right you wrote. I, I could conceivably put up every issue I did. And so, some of them, some of the ones I did, I have digitally because um, in the early days I did it on a typewriter, but eventually most of us would just like send a, like a PDF to the central mailer. I'm so, just curious. It doesn't seem, it seems kind of strange that you would have something that limited to 25 people, but it seems like it would piss off a lot of people. <laughs> you probably uh, did. It didn't piss me off. It just was, I was always on the perpetual mailing list because, you know, you heard the big names, you know, it's like, I don't have a spot because Leonard Malton's on there, you know, they're not going right. to bump him for me. You know, it's like, even now they won't, wouldn't do that. Um, the question I had about it is... It just seems um, like someone, someone that would piss uh, somebody off. Well, you probably did, but it, <laughs> those are the breaks. It's, I'll, I'll talk about the one I was a member of in a second, but... Um, is there anything in your memory of all the years of Appetunes that was like, I mean, without revealing it, I guess, is there anything historical in there? Like any interviews that might just be lost to time because they're just in that or any juicy information or gossip that's only in that because it's in that <laughs> to your people, knowledge. I mean, people definitely ran interviews, people like, like Jim who had done a bunch of them. Um, I remember, um, I mean, some of this, I think, came out eventually there i remember there was stuff about the um basically the um the fact that chuck jones and bob clampett were not happy with each other and there, there was the, the letter that chuck wrote complaining about bob and i, I think like tex avery uh had a copy and, and scrawled his support for chuck on that and uh, we saw that years ago I, I think that's out there now um, oh yeah that's that's out on mike barrier's website I, oh I'd yeah say, 
I'd say okay. we got we got early access to a lot of cool stuff that later came out, and um, and some people have put out stuff that originated in Appetunes, like uh, Keith Scott wrote about uh, the fact that um, Foghorn Leghorn was not originally an imitation of Senator Claghorn, which was an amazing discovery at the time, and he he eventually posted online that that article he had written for Appetunes. Yeah, he posted that on Cartoon Research. Uh, Mark Mayerson, who was another great fan, who's done some great stuff, um, I believe has posted some of his. I imagine writings. some of Jim's animation anecdotes have scrolled from the ranks of Appetunes too, right? I think so. I, I think if you look at his more, more recent contributions, you, you will find some of the material he wrote for us way back when. I mean, Jim is always kind of specialized. Is, is it all, is it all forbidden gossip or was it just some, was it just articles and various things that could be? There was basically anything people wanted to do. So back yeah. in the day, um, we would write reviews. I mean, the, you know, in the early '80s, animation was sort of starting to come out of this long slumber, and there, there were people like Don Bluth and uh, Ralph Bakshi who were at least trying to do interesting stuff. And th this was before the Little Mermaid came out. And uh, you know, in 1981, um, TV animation was a vast wasteland. But a few years later, there were there were things like. Um, the new Mighty Mouse that got interesting. So we, we were doing this at a, a time and animation was kind of going from being pretty terrible to at least slightly interesting. And so, of course, we wrote a lot about, about the good old days. Um, another thing that was really kind of unifying was this was also the period where people were getting their hands on VCRs and we would all kind of like wake up early and tape record cartoons off of WTBS at six in the morning and discuss them. And uh, APAs had th these things called mailing comments, which is basically you read an issue and then the next issue, you have a section of your zine where you comment. And so we, we would all comment on each other's zines and it, it was really sort of like forum postings, except they only came out once every two months and they were, they were probably a little bit more civilized. We, I mean, we certainly, we certainly did occasionally have uh, disputes between members, but, but for the most part, it was um, a pretty friendly and constructive environment. Uh, the reason I'm asking about interviews is like when I was doing my DePatty Freeling book, the one person that apparently was never interviewed by anybody. And, you know, if you say, oh, yes, it was in the APA, then I'd be like, wow, uh, Holly Pratt Ooh. seemingly was never, never sat down for an official interview. I mean, I, I've talked to people like Art Leonardi. Oh, yeah, I used to sit with him all the time and talk about things. Was there an ever a tape recorder? No, you know, things like that. So, ah! you know, so I was. Hoping I, mean, I mean, I imagine like landmark things like that would probably have been re reprinted by Not now. Necessarily. Right? Well, yes and no. I mean, it depends. I mean, whoever uh, did the interview, they might not be around, so they don't necessarily give their blessing. So it's just kind of lost in that limbo. <laughs> I'm trying to remember when Holly Pratt died. Was he still around when kind of the animation fandom uh, started yeah, to boom? I can look it up while we're talking. You know, Alexa, <laughs> when did Holly Pratt die? Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, no. Alexa, shut up. Uh, right Alexa never knows anything. <laughs> anyway. I, sometimes, I sometimes regret the fact that when I was talking to people like Seamus and Maurice, that I, I didn't like tape record the entire conversations. Although in both cases, both of those guys were interested in so many topics that we did not just sit around and talk about animation. We talked about all kinds of stuff. In 1999. So. Okay. So he, he could have been interviewed. Yeah. But, you know, like I said, I asked everybody and it's like, no, you know, it's like, wow, you know, you'd think the guy who designed the Pink Panther would have been interviewed at some point, but maybe Frizz and uh, David were the de facto go-tos and sometimes art. You know, I don't know. Anyway, um, I'll mention my app. Uh, the one that I was a member of is WTFB, which is where the fun begins. And it was about the Disney afternoon. So, uh, ours was a little different than Appetunes, although the format was the same. You know, we would make like 25 copies and there was a central mailer. But um, the uh, focus, I tended to write historical pieces on Disney because that's where I'm at. Uh, but there's other people that just wrote fan fiction. Uh, and most of the fan fiction was about, you know, gummy bears or, you know, Goof Troop or whatever, Chippendale, what Rescue Rangers, those shows. Um, but I asked the, the de facto leader, I said, well, 
I don't want to write about those shows, even though that's what the fanzine's about. Can I write one about Mickey Mouse? Because there's no Mickey Mouse show in the Disney afternoon. They go, sure. And so I wrote a fiction piece, uh, which uh, was uh, called Horace Horse Collar's Dilemma. And it was supposed to be like a lost 1930s Mickey Mouse script, as it were, you know, as a story. And, you know. Yeah, it was yeah, like that. Can, know, can I say something about this real quick? I bought it for I bought this for six dollars because the guy who was running the bookstore was not paying attention. Wow. He was on his phone and being like, Can I buy this? He's like, sure. I'm like, how much do you want for it? He's like, Oh no, six dollars. Okay, great. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so um, but that uh WTFB, let's see, it started sometime in the nineties and it went probably about ten years, you know. Oh. Uh, Kappa Alpha was this really famous That's comics. That's another one. That's Kappa right. that yeah. um, I assume no longer. I've heard exists. of that one. Um, uh, Mike Barrier was a member of that, like in the '60s, and there actually are a few, at least a few issues of that. There, if you go to these um, websites that have public domain comics, at least one of them has a fanzine section, and that has some some early uh, Kappa Alphas, in, including like the, like the earliest issues of Funny World, even before it was called Funny World. <laughs> Do these kinds of cool. magazines still exist? Appas. I'm betting there are probably some appas out there, maybe. Um, although, again, uh, kind of everything that you would go to an appa to uh, in the past, the web now does in a, in a much faster, yeah. uh, more practical fashion. Although, be, be, I mean, I've been talking about maybe doing like a um, a special uh, revival issue of Appatoons and inviting everybody who ever belonged to contribute, and maybe even people who didn't belong, but who are people of our type, like you two. Um, there is an Appatoons. Uh, Facebook group, uh, which is not super duper active, but is, is still a place where we, we continue to talk about stuff. Yeah, th I would say, yeah, social media has probably replaced it. I mean, if somebody really wanted to do it, like Camden, if you really wanted to do it, you yeah, know, you get 25 of your friends, sure. tell them to write something, make 25 copies and ship it to you. Then you put them all together and ship them back out. You know, that's as simple as that. But, you know, yeah. it's like, you know. <laughs> for what purpose i don't know well yeah <laughs> um yeah I, i'm trying to think uh the only other reason well the only the one thing i remember on the appetunes issues that i got i got like two or three of them it seems like one of them and it might have been one of, you said there was like some public samplers i think one yes. of them was that we, we put them and, together for the san diego convention yeah i know i got one of those um and uh somebody went to the trouble of putting an actual animation cell Oh my gosh! Yeah. Uh, Jerry, that? Uh, Jerry would put cells in all the time. He yeah, like, yeah. Um, so I was like, uh, that would be the purpose of doing and, a an app. now is if you did uh, something to totally unique. And uh, I remember there's also I don't know if it was Animato or if it was in Animania. I think it was Animato. Is that column called "A Little Bird Told Me"? Yes. They, they, I remember this vividly just because you know I just assumed. Uh, watch blah blah blah. I can't even remember the film, but I remember the other part. I just as soon cut up a, a copy of uh, a film copy of The Secret of Nim. And so there's like a little, like three or four that. frames of the film taped, scotch taped to the page. <laughs> I thought that was hysterically funny. <laughs> um, Jerry, Jerry had a, like a stack of possible possum cells, if you remember this. Yeah, yeah. Terrible Terry Toons character. <laughs> so he, he put possible possum cells in and then we, we had another great member named dave bennett uh who is a fantastic cartoonist and he, he worked for the rick reinert studios who did a lot of stuff back then and so he, he started sharing lots of rick reinert cells and then eventually uh dave did a an original cell for our cover for rock one of our anniversary issues um so yes that that's the kind of thing that uh is really cool and what you can't really do online yeah and yeah, then any, people would any... people would also send other things through like i remember um there was this Bullwinkle's restaurant chain yep. and Mike went to a Bullwinkle's restaurant and like he, he stole like 30 menus and, and ran them through. <laughs> I could have done that. <laughs> anything, anything you could get 25 or 30 copies of you would yeah. send through. My only copies of Animato are actually June Foray's copies of Animato. Oh, wow. That's, are they the cool. full it's size cool ones think... or the digest? They're the full size ones. Oh, okay. All right. I mean, it's cool to think that June even had those. Uh, that's fun. <laughs> she had a couple of them. I think it might not have been Animato. It was one of the ones where Bill Scott's interview was reprinted, which I know that, Jim. That was Animato. That was an Animato. Jim yes. reprinted that interview, though, everywhere. It was yes. reprinted in Hogan's Alley. It was reprinted in that Frostbite Falls fan magazine. 
right? Yes. I, I, and um, I have Jim's copy of that magazine. I, I, I will say this about Jim Corcus. When he writes an article, he gets good mileage out of it. Because <laughs> for Harvey, he wrote an article about um, the, the Harvey superheroes that were created by Jim Steranko. And that thing appeared in my fanzine, but it appeared everywhere. You know, it's like he yeah, told me, you know, this is like the fifth place this has appeared. But, he, so he, but <laughs> I, you got to hand it to him. Yeah. I think he does edit every time. He, he edits and adds more each oh, time. Oh, yeah, he does. He, I'll, but, I'll but agree. It's like, yes, for yes. Cartoon Research, yeah. Jerry has told me the first time I met Jerry Beck, which I told the story before, the very first thing Jerry told me was I was showing Craig Cawson, Chuck's grandson, the issue of Film Comment with Bugs Bunny on the cover. And he'd never seen it. And Jerry walks up to me, and the very first thing he's ever says to me is, I bought that the first day it came out. That's how old I am. <laughs> but, um, and then he just walks away. But, sounds like Jerry. <laughs> but he, um, he told me that Jim writes and he's the one who puts things out the fastest. Like he has backlogs for like weeks from weeks and months from now for cartoon research. Jim uh, had a, a at least one zine in every issue of Appetunes for decades. I, I think maybe he finally broke his streak, but he, he was our most prolific contributor. But I know that right now for cartoon research, I know he's doing that suspended animation. It's really like a stretch of all of the stuff. And by the way, um, another thing that came out is when I was helping Amber with her documentary, we came up to the idea of doing Bill Scott. And I had this idea. I'm like, Keith Scott can do an impression of everything. What if you got Keith Scott to do a Bill Scott impression, narrating pieces of Jim Corcus's interview that we wanted to use, but we couldn't use? <laughs> because, but Keith wouldn't do it. What do you mean you couldn't use them because the family said no? No, oh. no. It's just that Amber. Oh, you couldn't use. use them because they were audio clips. They weren't audio clips. I mean, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But he. <laughs> I but, thought, but, thought you're I just think there's a scene kept from saying it because there's some juicy. He wants to gossip. make a second part, and the second part is just about Jay Ward. And I think she's going to narrate a lot of that. Which I know. I think Harry, if he asked you about being in. Have you seen it, Harry? Have you seen yeah, the Bill oh, Scott one? Or... Amber Oh, yeah, gosh, I love that. And in okay. fact, um, um, he was there I, at the I, premiere. Yes, I, help, I helped. Oh, okay. I helped. Whoops. <laughs> I, I helped Amber out a, a little bit with it, and then um, uh, I I went to that Zoom premiere and uh, got so excited that I, I remembered I had been working on this long article about the Bullwinkle statue, which I had kind of got to be so overwhelming. I I put it aside for a while, and uh, Amber's documentary came out. Um, just a little bit before the um, 60th anniversary of the Bullwinkle statue. And so mm -hmm. I was so inspired by Amber that I, I worked to finish my, this monstrous article on the Bullwinkle statue in time was, for, for the anniversary. And so I, I, I was, Amber I was really credit. surprised and pleased that I got credited on that thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, well, you, you definitely helped. And um, I um, originally it was just going to be about these elbow prints that were at the base of the statue and uh -huh. are, are still there at the former J word studio. And then I, I started digging into the history of the statue itself, uh, which led me to research this Sahara casino um, sign across the street with this rotating showgirl, which the Bullmichael statue was riffing on. And so I kind of couldn't stop researching it. And by the time I was done, it was like the longest thing I've, I've ever written and um, full of stuff, which I, I don't, don't think people knew. And um, my, I guess the highlight was that I, I Keith Scott said he learned stuff from it. And if you can write about Jay Ward and, and Keith learned Skip something. Craig, uh, I called Skip Craig afterwards. And I'm like, you've got to read this. Yes. <laughs> this is before. I think he just has gotten on the internet now. He just <laughs> has now entered Facebook. Um, I, I, I'm like, I called his son, Jeff. I'm like, print this out, give it to him. And I do know that he has told me that he has, he pulls out that article and he pulls out the interview I do it occasionally. That means a lot. I also got a nice note from Bill Scott's son, John. So yes. um, it's probably it's probably the most highly praised I, thing I've written. Um, Neil I Gaiman, can tell you right Neil now, Gaiman retweeted it and Michael McKean retweeted it. I can tell you that right now, though, um, I think it was Amber who shared it with Bill Scott's son. Ah. I shared it with Amber and Amber knows Bill Scott's son, John. So I think that was probably yeah, her. 
I'm no, sure it was. It seems yeah. like I've seen this, but where where did it appear? It it appeared on my website harrymcracken.com, okay, which, I, which, what, I, okay. which these days I, I update only very occasionally. So that's like the okay. the only thing I put up there in, in quite a while. Um, but I I like I redesigned my whole site to to give it a beautiful treatment, and mm. um, I have actually I have another article which is sort of like that one in, in that it has an animation connection without really being about animation, which I, I hope to put some effort into and get it up there. Um, how long now? I have to ask you about your tech, your tech thing. Do the people you work with in the tech world know that you're this kind of animation nerd and then vice versa? Sometimes. It's like you're like uh, a Jekyll and Hyde thing going on right now. Right. Um, I, I mean, I don't make any uh, attempt to um, hide it for sure. I also don't like run around the office um, talking about Holly Pratt or anything like that. Um, <laughs> my my boss the other day made a, a Tex Avery reference over Slack to me, so apparently he he was thinking about it. I mean, and he also told me that uh, growing up he loved bedknobs and broomsticks and uh, the Disney Robin Hood cartoon. Uh, when I left PC World, um, where I had worked for like thirteen years, they had this nice going away party. And they commissioned this this great artist who drew for us to do this this beautiful portrait of me, my Mazda three car, which was new at the time, and Scrappy, um, <laughs> uh, which which I still have and 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 treasure. So every every so often, uh, people pay tribute to my love of cartoons. But mm -hmm. uh, I think when it, I first met you, probably by email, probably or some it, other way, I don't remember. Is like I said, are you the same Harry? McCracken, you know, that does this because I knew you one way or the other way, you know, you know, it's like, and you said, yeah, it's me. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I, and I do occasionally write about animation. Um, I, I wrote something on um, about um, Goldie Blocks, uh, which is this um, brand of um, entertainment um, aimed at kind of inspiring little girls to be techies. And um, the, uh, the founders, um, Grandmother was, oh my gosh, I'm spacing her name, but she was a designer at UPA and designed the, the, the kind of the familiar version of Mr. Magoo, mm. who's a little cuter and rounder that we all know. And so mm -hmm. it, that was actually on Fast Company and discussed animation a bit. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, is Fast Company the current magazine you're still working with? Or? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's, I, I work at Fast okay. Company and we, we actually still do have a magazine and like Appetunes, it, it comes out six times a year. Um, but we also have a, a website and we do events and podcasts and videos and everything. Because I thought I'd still see it on the stands, you know. Still, um, still, still out there. Um, we've been necessarily for, read it, I hate hey. to say, but that's the stands. I don't think they have magazine stands anymore. Well, do you have a Barnes and Noble there? That's where I get everything. And they still have a plentiful supply. Although I don't understand this. We're talking about magazines that have outstayed their welcome or just continue publishing i don't understand how there's so many needlepoint magazines i mean is there really well, that yeah. much? i'm gonna tell I, you about this right now i i'm a librarian harry and i've i constantly am telling mark like today i had to go in the back i went to the bathroom and i had i had the, there was some team some some little brat wrote a nice little note from the bathroom wall writing the words avenge me on it with some, with some useful things in the stall that I don't want to go near or touch. <laughs> I saw a good article the other day about the fact that essentially um, newsstand magazines are kind of secretly becoming books because they're they're all these things that are like cost fifteen dollars, oh, yeah. a nice paper, and it's it's like mm -hmm. uh, a tribute to Bob Saget. Uh, yeah. There have been there have been a whole bunch of Disney ones, a whole bunch of. Uh, there was the Times did the Schultz, the, the, the Time Magazine did the Schultz, yes, Schultz. Um, When I worked at Time, I worked on several of those. And in, in fact, um, here's kind of a cute story. Um, when I worked at Time, we did one called the, the, the 100 um, Most um, Influential People Who Never Lived, which was a spin on this, this most yeah, influential people was, franchise yeah. we did. And uh, they asked me if I wanted to, to, to contribute. And I said, that sounds like a lot of fun. And they sent me this long list of, of candidates, and these are all fictional people. And uh, I narrowed it down to my the list of they, they said, "Would you like to do two? And I, I started by narrowing it down to Wonder Woman, Mary Richards, uh, Pinocchio, and Lucy Ricardo. 
Mm. And I, I decided ultimately that I had the most to say about Pinocchio, who at least is a cartoon character, and Lucy Ricardo. So I wrote those up and sent them into my editor. And then um, eventually um, my print copy of, of the magazine came out um, some weeks or maybe a couple of months later. And so I already knew what these two things I had written looked like. So my first question was, who did they get to write about Wonder Woman and Mary Richards? And I opened it up. And uh, the Mary Richards profile was written by Mary Taylor Moore. And uh, you may be able to guess who wrote about Wonder Woman. Linda Carter, I guess. Linda Carter. Yeah. Linda Carter. So, <laughs> so after I turned down those two assignments, they, they got Mary Taylor Moore and Linda Carter to, to write about them. And then at the back of the magazine, there were, there were a little biographies of all the authors. And I was right next to Mary Taylor Moore. And so I, I can... Uh, honestly say that we, we, we worked together on something sort of and our names appeared together That's cool. and, and it was way more cool that they got Linda Carter and Mary Tyler Moore to do these than if I, I had done them. Um, by the way, Mark, to answer your question, mm. when, I, when I'm shelving magazines, there are so many quilting magazines, yeah. but the magazines, but they'll, they'll, but they'll market, magazines will market things, the quilting magazines for a certain area. And I think the theory is they're all old people. They're all old people. Yeah. But um, how to stop all people stuff at least content. 20 years older than you are. But hopefully <laughs> these magazines are about this thick. Yeah. And you can barely put them on the shelf. Of course, it's like a Time magazine. I think Time, as, as, as the New York Times gotten smaller, the uh, New York Times magazine gotten smaller. Because... Uh, generally speaking, almost every magazine has. And uh, when I worked at Time, it was a weekly. I mean, and, that, and, uh, and now it's um, bi weekly. Yeah, but I mean, well, like, well, time is yeah, it's fewer pages because there's not as many ads, right. and it's also slightly smaller. They've, you know, condensed it down, not tremendously. It still looks like a magazine, but so they didn't bring it down to a comic book size. But still, you can I mean, see them shaving off millimeters left and right. Yeah, uh, you know? when I worked at PC World, we had a circulation of more than a million, and if you if you shave a tiny bit of um, the size of the paper. Uh, there's just like a 16th of an inch or something times 1 million copies yeah. that actually saves a lot of money. And we, we would also occasionally go to cheaper paper. And after a while you could, you could read what was ever on the other side of the page. And, yeah. and when, <laughs> when your press run is that large, it, it saves quite a bit, but I'd say today, a lot of the publications that are still doing okay are, are the ones that actually do have kind of nice production values. If you, if you look at fast company, uh, it's on good paper and we have nice photography and, um, yeah, but, but I know there's a lot of magazines. Enough, and we're able to charge enough to make a, a, make money just from the readers because the advertising business is not what it used to be. Mm -hmm. Magazines seem to also combine different subjects. You know, Garden and Gun was a magazine before, but Birmingham Garden and Gun. Right. And it uh, would combine different subjects constantly. And I have to ask, Harry, though, have you, I know, we have you ever written for a comic book or for animation? Uh, I I'd say the answer is no to both. I'm trying to think of, I'm, I never even like wrote a letter to a comic book as far as I can remember. And I definitely have not written for animation. I've, I've occasionally wondered if I should try to write, write stuff. I've written um, some comic book stories, but no, I haven't written for animation. So we had, uh, we had quite a number of people in Appetunes who did at least some comics writing and some, some folks like, like David Gerstein. And, uh, and I, I guess I first, met David when he wrote a fan letter to Animato when he was still in school. And it was fun to see him actually start to write comics. And Don, Don Markstein, as I mentioned, wrote quite yeah. a few. Don Markstein's website, the, the World Encyclopedia of Cartoons. The Tunapedia, yeah. Yeah, I love that that website is still active. Yes, uh, it went it went down, uh, it did go down. About, about a year ago. And uh, David and I kind of panicked uh, <laughs> since since Don was no longer around to, like, right. to pay the... Uh, domain and hosting fees. And we, we made contact with one of Don's daughters and it, it turned out she was extremely interested in keeping it, it going. And so she, she sat down and, and paid the fee and uh, it's still out there. Yes, I appreciate that it's still out there. That's a really useful tool. Speaking of- Apple's I love it. I always love that he had a link for everything in the website. Like he'll, like, he'll like make slide jokes and it would be like, you know, Uncle Sam. Then it's like, not this Uncle Sam. <laughs> Or this Uncle Sam. Right. Don uh, Don was always a really engaging and fun writer, and it's it's nice to know that you know there's there's this kind of huge repository of his writing that's readily available, and pe people are actually looking at because if you if you Google for a lot of these obscure cartoon characters, um, the Tunapedia might be one of the first things you see. 
it's always the first thing you see, like even on Wikipedia, if you go to Wikipedia articles to learn more and better information, go to this website. It's always that website. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, so quickly, uh, one of the members of WTFP, David Gerstein. I bet you didn't know that. <laughs> so he was an APA member and he did some fan fiction. He did a little of both. He did some fan fiction. He did some historical articles. He didn't get to be the level he is now where he knows every little solid thing possible about yeah. Oswald the Rabbit or whatever. But, you know, it's like he was, you could tell because he's in his early 20s at the time. You could tell he was getting in that direction. So it was kind of interesting. I, you know? <laughs> I emailed David when I was, I did this article on Ralph Heimdall, which thankfully will have a sequel. Um, for cartoon research where I went in because the Harry, I don't know if you saw it. My article I wrote, but no, I have to track it down. That sounds great. St. Cloud, Minnesota archives. I'm a, I'm a library science major. So archives really interest me. Um, St. Cloud, Minnesota university accessed Ralph Heimdall's daughter's entire collection. Oh, wow. And they have this great collection of original art and everything. And I profiled the whole story. And I asked Carrie, okay, I'd like some extra info because, and then I also um, profiled a little bit, Billy Ireland had a little bit too. So I profiled them a little bit too, because I've been over to that museum. It's wonderful. That's great. They gave me the grand tour behind the scenes too, but I grew up on that Bugs Bunny newspaper strip that was kind of like set in an alternate universe uh, where the characters all looked a little I, different. I, and... I refer to the comic books as Earth 2 and I refer to the comic strip as Earth 3. And yeah. like Sylvester was kind of like a was like a hobo with a British accent or something. Kind of like, like Wimpy. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you would call people gov governor. I forgot yeah. about that. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and, um, but Martha Slavin, his daughter, emailed me a few weeks um contacted me a few weeks ago and she really liked what i wrote i will find that because I, I would love but, to know more but um david i asked him like okay what do you know and within like five seconds he gave me this whole this 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 list and i'm like thanks <laughs> just... i have um david i've often gone to david with questions on uh, scrappy and um columbia Sometimes people yeah. ask me about them because they assume I will know. And if, when I don't, David, generally speaking, does. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Harry McCracken and Camden Spees, for being my special guests. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 208 with part two of this interview will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. Yeah.